This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show, the award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. Hey everybody, it's Aaron Norris with the Norris Group, and today we are here with Rose Quint. She is the Assistant Vice President for Survey Research with the National Association of Home Builders. She has a BS in Economics and International Business with Old Dominion University, as well as a Master's Degree in Economics from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. And over in AHB, she's responsible for planning and conducting industry surveys, um, specifically in the areas of builder sentiment, remodeling, housing affordability, and AD&C financing issues. And before, well, first of all, welcome. Thank you for coming back this year. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and ADNC financing, I'm not familiar with that. What does that stand for? Uh, that's acquisition, development, and construction loans. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so every quarter we do a, um, we send out a survey to single family builders and land developers, and we ask them a bunch of questions about how easy or difficult it is to obtain financing. Oh, interesting. Well, maybe we'll get to that today. I, I was sad to have to miss the builder show. I, I heard it didn't snow this year in Las Vegas during the show. <laughs> like it did the year before while I was there. Absolutely. It was actually great weather. Which was surprising because last year was so bad. Was it was it earlier this year? Or was it me? Uh, the the IPS this year was on June on uh, January twenty first. For some reason, I thought it was in February or March the year before. I yeah, it had been. Fe- it was February the year before. You're right. Okay, you're right. And next year will be February as well. Okay, yeah, good because it was so close to CES. I couldn't do both in one month, and I was so sad because the only thing I got to see at CES was some of the smart home products, but not as many of the trends in sort of like um, the kitchen and bath and things going on in that world. So maybe did you was the what is a good turnout? Were you guys happy with uh, the show? I think the show was a success. Uh, I, I don't have the numbers in my head as to the number of square feet or attendees, but um, I heard that it was very well attended. That I know when I walked the aisles, they were packed. Um, even on the third day, which tends to be the, the slowest day of um, attendance and traffic through the aisles, uh, I was there on that day, and I saw a lot of people connecting and networking. Well, I was really sad to miss it, and it's always really interesting to sort of see what's uh, coming up, and I missed all the sessions, and when I went last year, one of my favorite sessions was listening to you sort of talking through the builder trend, so thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, Let's start with, uh, this is the fourth year in a row that the size of the new single-family homes has decreased, and uh, what's going on with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting trend. So if I can put it in a little bit of a longer historical context for you, um, the the average size of homes um, increased for about six years after the recession, every year consecutively between 2010 and 2015. It finally peaked that year at close to 2,700 square feet. And what we've seen happen since then is a decrease year after year in 16, 17, 18, and then most recently last year in 19, uh, where now it stands at about 2,500 square feet, just a little over 2,500 square feet. Um, And that is only about 20 square feet bigger than it was at the peak of the housing boom in 2007 when it was about 2,500. So... Yeah, it's been declining, and and all the trends, not just size, but other trends in in new home characteristics, such as 
the share of those homes that have um, four bedrooms or more or three full bathrooms or more, all of these characteristics point to an industry. They point to builders specifically trying really hard to meet the demand for smaller homes. They are doing what they can to shift their mix, their production mix, to tend to the entry-level home buyer. And I don't know if I missed this last year because I really, I, I, I'm glad you went back all the way to the last downturn because at the very peak in like 07, the builders were building on average uh, like one square foot under 2,500 square feet. It went down to 2,362 by, I think that's 2009, 2010. And then it's just really weird. I'm so, I remember here, at least in California, they were building a lot of McMansions. So it, it doesn't seem like they've gone as hard this cycle. So I was just really see that it had gone all the way to almost 2,700 square feet. So interesting. Yes, yes. It went up to 2,689 by the year 2015. But keep in mind that it was that increase was driven mostly by the fact that the only people that had access during the recession and immediately after the recession um, who had access to uh, mortgages were people with with very strong equity positions, with mm. good employment papers, um, because it became very difficult to obtain a mortgage. And, and and by definition, the people that have those financial characteristics buy large homes. Got it. Okay. And now that maybe millennials are entering the market in much larger numbers, uh, they're coming in and maybe buying a little smaller. Exactly. So now Got we've it. seen the pendulum swing back a little bit, and it's become easier. Uh, underwriters have... Um, relax a little bit the the rules on mortgage underwriting and therefore it's become a little easier to <clears throat> to obtain mortgages and on top of that um job growth has been great uh wages are rising millennials are entering the home buying years um you know in full force so yes demand has increased um tremendously in the last few years i really like the data because as uh, uh the most of our listeners are remodelers and so i love looking to the builders to see uh, you guys spend so much time and money researching uh what people want to buy it's just it feels like a cheat sheet so thank you you spend so you guys yeah. work so hard on this <laughs> well you know it's one of the things that um we pride ourselves in doing because our builders need it, number one. But number two, it's it, NHP is um, we, we are looked after for this kind of information from, like yourself, like you're saying, from remodelers, but from other analysts, from government agencies, from um, various different other um, types of nonprofit organizations, um, because it's it's what builders tell us they're going to put in homes in the following year, and then extensive research from home buyers into what they want. Well, one of the, the really nice things that was in your presentation was the Best of uh, American Living Awards. Um, and I don't think we talked about that last year we were here. Can you share a little bit about what that award is and who it goes to? Uh Good question. So this year, I, I typically get paired up with a co-speaker to do the press conference and the, uh, and the education session on this topic um, at IBS. And this year, uh, my co-speaker was the chairman of the award, which he is a, um, a very brilliant architect, by the way, in San Francisco. You may know him, Don uh, Ruthroff. I, I forget the name of his um uh, Dowling Group Architecture, I think they're called. They're out of San Francisco. Anyway, he's the chair of that of the Bala Awards, and I understand my limited understanding of that is that um, builders submit 
um, pictures and, and specifications about homes that they build that fit into various categories for the award. Got it. And then a group of judges made up of builders and architects um, at NHB get together once a year and, um, you know, choose the winners. And then the winners are presented at a nice ceremony at IBS. They're given awards. And then this year, what Don did was he came on stage with me and he talked about how my trends fit into um, what he's seeing as an architect in those awards. Uh, yeah, I agree. And it, you had um, several pictures in your presentation. I just wanted to bring it up. I was not familiar with the award, but I there were several California um, communities that, that made it in there. I think there were three. Um, so just for inspiration, it's B-A-L-A um, awards. You'll probably find some information online, but some really great information and some really beautiful architecture and interesting designs as well. So. Uh- and Aaron, the, the entire, um, if you haven't done so, uh, the PowerPoint that I sent you is also available on um, the Builder Show website. So people can go there, download it, and look not only at the numbers that I presented, but also at those pictures that you're referring to. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes, too, because this is awesome. <laughs> um what were you hearing as far as builder trends? What are builders saying about the difficulty to build? Is it getting easier, harder? Well, I'll tell you, as I said a minute ago, the the trends that we see on the ground, on the homes that are actually being built, tell us right away what I said earlier, the builders are working to meet demand for smaller homes. Um, And and we see that in the fact that the the homes that were put in the ground last year are the smallest homes since 2011. Mm. So let's just sink in for a minute. It's The average home in 2019 was the smallest home builders have put in the ground since 2011. Um, but it, but if a lot of people are curious about why it's still why it's so difficult for builders to build small, right? It, it, mm-hmm. To a lot of people not familiar with the industry, um, they don't understand the difficulties. And and I I like to point out two very specific reasons. There are many more, but two specific reasons. One of them is the the seriously restrictive zoning regulations that are out there in many um, localities in our country. And there are several examples of this. If you want me to go into you know some very high-level detail, um, there are minimum lot size requirements, for example, telling builders, you know, the house that you build has to live on a certain size lot, and that makes it difficult because land is expensive. Mm -hmm. Or there's minimum parking requirements that tell builders, well, for this building, you have to have this many uh, parking spots off the street, um, not related to the demand necessarily of, of parking from that street, from that building. Um, there are design standards telling builders you have to use this material, for example, for the outside of the house. Even if, if that's expensive or even if the home buyer is not interested, that's the standard we want in this town or in this county. And then there's inclusionary zoning. That Those are rules that tell builders, well, a certain number of the houses that you build in this development, they have to be priced so that they're affordable to low-income people or, or um, middle-income people. Right. So, so all those things make it difficult uh, for builders to build small. And then on top of that, you add lot prices. Last year, the estimate is that the average lot price in America was $57,000. $57,000. And I, I remember uh, David Burson, uh, chief economist of NAHB, talking about last year a lot of the concerns with builders with labor going up quite a bit. You've got, you know, the regular cost of construction. And then on average, the amount of money that builders were spending on average for government impact fees was just crazy. It's been it's been a big fight here in California with the accessory dwelling unit conversation. So these small yeah. gra- granny flats, some cities were charging $50,000 just because you wanted to build one. It had nothing to do with the structure itself. So Absolutely. 
I feel for the builders. Um, it seems like it's getting, <laughs> yeah. I, and it's also very frustrating to listen to politicians have a, a conversation about affordable housing and they're really not throwing solutions at it, just more cost. So here in California, there's solar required now. I'm just wondering what's next. <laughs> yeah, labor is, you, you hit it right on the nail. Labor is the other leg of that stool that's kind of on the shaky side. Um, any given month, there are about 300,000, somewhere between 300 and 400,000 open positions in the construction industry in the country. So we, we just can't find the labor that we need to build the houses that we need. Was there more talk this year about, uh, it got brought up a little bit, I've heard over the last 12 months, about pre uh, prefabrication and national builders starting to lean into factory built because it's more green, maybe more sustainable, but just I mean, it seems like just the labor issue alone is going to be more of a concern. Did that come up at all this year? You know, um, we talk about it internally all the time, how that could be a, a huge help to um, alleviate the labor problem. The issue with, with modular housing or prefab housing is the overall, I don't want to call it stigma, but the overall um, impression and opinion that people, home buyers, have about those homes. Uh, it's difficult for builders to break through that uh, barrier when, um, you know, the community that they live in don't necessarily want to have or live in those types of homes, even though, you know, the builders may be ready to retool and, and relearn new techniques in order to build those types of homes. The, the biggest problem they have is, is objections from the home buyer. Um, but they don't deny the fact that, and we don't deny the fact that um, it, it would be a, a solution, a part of the solution, not obviously the only solution, but it would be a part of the solution hmm. if we could increase that market. Um, but again, builders have to work with the market that they have. Interesting. Yeah, it's we've come a long way from the 1970s, sort of like the mobile home that gave it all a dirty word. But what can you do, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, and if you look at these things, if you, if you went to the IBS or sometimes we go to these other shows where they have them built for, you know, as an exhibition, these homes are beautiful. They, they look spectacular. And they, they, you could not tell once you're inside that you're in one of these houses. It, it's impossible. They, they look just like a stick-built house. Yeah. And in some cases, the, 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 especially with the labor shortage, I mean, in some cases, you might consider it might be even better built <laughs> with, when it's in a controlled environment. You've got specialists that are doing very specific things. Well, so it's a marketing issue. All right. We'll have to work on that. But, well... I love the the most likely features. Your your list that you put together are just so fun. And it's always interesting to see what comes up and what doesn't come up. Um, so your top three this year that ranked really highly, uh, it's a rating scale from one to five, one being not at all likely and five very likely builder will include. So walk-in closet in the master bedroom, low E windows and laundry room were your top three um, at 4.9 and the last two were a 4.8. So apparently if you're not building those in, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. And, and when, you know, builders nationwide tell you that it's a pretty sure bet they're going to include these things in their homes, um, you know, you can walk into any average home out there this year and, and, and these features will be there. And, and it's all driven by consumer preferences, right, that homebuyers want these things in their homes. Yeah, and uh, I, that's why I love it. This The list of the most likely features, is, it looks like it's about 20. Um, and I think you brought up last year at the, the press conference that um, – or it was in the data somewhere that said that consumers wanted energy-efficient features. They just didn't want to pay for more for it. <laughs> so I, 
I'm looking at this list of things that they want, and it seems reasonable, you know, in the build, like Energy Star appliances, windows that you're going to put in anyway. But is that still a trend you guys are seeing? Yeah, uh, let me let me um, you know get a little bit more granular in what you just said there. So when you ask home buyers in a very theoretical sense as to whether they're interested in in helping the environment through, you know, their construction or purchase of their home, you don't get a lot of warm feelings from home buyers when, when you present it in that very theoretical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you ask them in a different way, when you ask them, well, um, how much would you pay extra for a home, you know, in addition to the price of the home, if it saved you $1,000 in utility costs every year? Mm. So it's basically the same question, but one is theoretical, the other one's very practical, very dollars and cents, very, very tangible. And uh, then in that second form of the question, you get very different results. You get people saying they will pay on average close to $8,000 or around $8,000 to save that $1,000 a year in utility costs. So, and the vast majority said they would pay you know, upwards of $5,000. So, so yes, or hmm. upwards of $1,000. So yes, um, it, it, in a theoretical sense, yeah, not a lot of warm feelings, but when it comes to if you, if you express it as a builder in terms of the, the savings, um, you will have you will have buyers interested. Okay, yeah, just s- several energy and sustainability focused features are on this list, and I just remember hearing that last year. I'm like, okay, so as re- rehabbers too, keeping in mind a, a lot of these things are. Th- things that we're putting into rehabs anyway. And a lot of times there's rebates from the local utility to help underwrite that cost. But the way to market it is really creative. I spoke to the um, appraisal institute over um, the last 30 days and was talking to them about the form that they're creating. Because just because you put in a $30,000 solar system doesn't mean that the consumer is going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to pay that much more for the house. The form that they've been working on... um, basically says that it's trying to create the ROA, ROI for the consumer, um, showing them how much money that the house can save. And I think that's a brilliant way to your point of marketing it. It's just telling them annually how much they can expect to save, which is really great. Taking into consideration maybe the local utility as well. So the more granular you can get it, the better. Um, I'm looking at the features and I'm not seeing anything too off the cuff, you know, anything weird. Energy Star Appliances, Low E Windows. What was the other one? Um, let me let me j- jump in here and say something about uh, the green features that were included in the survey. Sure. So when we we added, there were a lot of green features in the survey, and um, when you tabulate them all and you look, you know, you t- you take a a look at all of them sort of broadly, you understand that when home buyers um, hear the word green, or when they the, the first thing that comes to their mind is energy efficiency features. That's that's like been the the top of the whole list of ground, of green features. Um, they want to save money, um, energy. They want features that will help them save energy. And then the second category of green features that they want deal with um, improving their quality inside their home. Hmm. So the first thing they go to when, when they hear green is, is saving, saving money on energy. Okay. First and foremost, that's what it means for home buyers when they hear the word green. Uh, not so much, you know, the... Um, the smart technologies or those things fall way lower. Um, the first thing they think about is technologies that will help them save money. I'm glad you said that. That was going to be sort of my next question. At CES, 
and a little bit last year, the word wellness kept coming up instead of sustainability and green, energy efficient. I, it was interesting to see. I remember being at CES and I, um, uh, KB Homes was showing off like a whole house wellness system that was tying all the smart technology together. And it was specifically addressing things like air quality. And I was just like, this seems really pushing it for me. Um, so it's good to hear that you're saying that as far as the smart home devices, because I was going to ask, I didn't see really any smart home driven consumer input on any of this. So they were on the survey. There's a, they just don't rank? They're there. Yeah, they're okay. there. They just don't rate uh, as high as the things that you see on here. That's exactly. great. That's good to know. I always laugh because this was the bottom of last year's too. Um, the most unlikely features, cork flooring. Is it like people are really specifying that as like, yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't ask me to explain that one. But yes, people are not interested in having cork flooring in that main area, the main areas of their homes. I was, um, it's, it's just not interesting. Was, and, and when you compare the results that you're looking at now from the builder survey, you and, and you compare that to the consumer survey, it's right on. The 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 uh, home buyers say absolutely, that's not something I want. Yeah, I was really glad to see dual toilets in the master bath out and pet washing station. That just seemed unnecessary. I have to tell you though, one of the things I was really surprised about was seeing the outdoor kitchen not ranking higher because you hear so much about, you know, it's about wellness and family get togethers and open space. So I was really surprised that that did not make a top feature. Well, keep in mind how the question was answered, was um, asked of builders. It it asked them about features that they are automatically including in the price of their typical home. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Okay. So they're they're not automatically including giving you an outdoor kitchen in in the price of the home. Got it. Okay. That, okay. That makes much more sense. Well, when it comes to, I, I don't remember you doing this year, the preference for the type of home to buy, you separated it this year in your presentation, first time buyer to repeat buyer, which I really liked. Um, and what was interesting, it looked like um, it, there was a shift. Uh, single family homes, again, ranked 77% of consumers. That's what they wanted. Um, the town homes sort of looked like that shifted to people more willing to look at multifamily and manufactured home. Did I read that correctly? So, yeah, so the reason I, I broke it down by first-time buyer versus repeat buyers, repeat buyers being people buying their second, third, fourth, and so on home, mm-hmm. um, is that, um, you know, this decline in the average size that we spoke about at, at the beginning of this interview um, is making it very important for everybody in the industry to understand what those first-time buyers are interested in because they're the ones coming in, you know, with a lot of strength into the market. So what we found is that the single-family detached home is the is the king of the land. It's it's what the, is the type of home that both first time home buyers that a majority of both first time home buyers and repeat buyers want. Um, very small minorities are interested in any of the other types of homes that we listed. Um, townhouses are under ten percent. Mm-hmm. Multifamily units, condos under ten percent. Manufactured homes that we just spoke about, barely five percent of first time buyers want to have would like to buy that kind of a home. Okay. And then with the preferences for new and existing home, I've seen some data that points to with millennials starting their home buying career so much later in life and further along in their career, uh, possibly only jumping into home ownership as they're creating family units and having kids, they're buying at a higher level than past generations. And I'm just curious, is the demand for new homes different this time around than maybe it has been in the last several decades? Uh, well, remember, this is a preferences study, right? It's not It's not a what exactly, what really did you buy? It's more a preference. What is your first preference when it comes to buying new versus existing? Sure. And 
the data shows that a majority of first-timers would like to buy an existing home versus the repeat buyers, a majority of whom want to buy a new home. Okay. Uh, but when you look at when when you look at the reality of, for example, in the last few years, um, you know, the share of new over existing, obviously the the share of all sales that are new homes is is ten percent or less um, compared to over ninety percent um, existing homes. So. Hmm. Preferences are one thing, but then reality is another thing. We hate reality. Forget that. <laughs> <laughs> um, preference for home size. I love that you broke that out differently too for the first time buyers. So their current home size is, you know, a little over 1,200 square feet. And then the desired, they want 50% more space. <laughs> yeah, the first time home buyers want more space. They, they, but they, I mean, look where they are now. They're uh, just under 1,300 square feet. So yes, they want to go to about 2,000 square feet. That's 56% more space. Um, but what's interesting about that number is that it's not that different from what, you know, the median size repeat buyers want, which yeah. is 2,066 square feet. That is really interesting. That, yeah, that, so, that, mm-hmm. Okay. And then preference for location, not surprised here, most, you know, still the really high numbers in the suburbs and the first time buyers trending a little bit more in sort of central city and urban environments. So A little bit. Mm-hmm. Rural, just not so much these days, huh? Well, you get, you know, you get your quarter, you know, 25% or so of your, both your groups that want to be, live in a rural setting. But the, the story here is that a majority of buyers want to live in the suburbs. And, and that's something that um, builders take back to when they listen to this kind of information. They take back to city councils, et cetera, who some, not all, who um, think that, you know, everybody wants to live in the central city now and that that's where all the growth should be. Um it's growing, but it's not where everybody wants to be. Um, most people still want to live in the suburbs. Well, this is a really good preference question then, because for the number of stories, it says the preference is for first uh, one story, but it just always seems when I'm in new communities, it's very rare that there are many single, very many single story models as part of the mix. Am I <laughs> want, well, right. <laughs> want and what you get are two different things. <laughs> Absolutely, you're right. I mean, you you can look at the data from the Census Bureau on characteristics and know that a majority of of homes are not one story, Uh, the majority of homes built in this country, but that's the preference. People would like to live on one-story homes. Um, Builders have a hard time doing that because they have to give you the 2,500 or the 2,000 or 2,500 square feet that they're going to give in that house. And, you know, the lot is only so big. The, the lot sizes are at their smallest in, I, I forget how many years or decades, um, because of the prices of the land. And so in order to give you the square feet and square footage, there, they have to build up. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time. I knew that that was going to go quickly. Um, Was there any last question? Was there any trends uh, on the show floor or that you've been studying that surprised you that we might not know? Uh, Not really. I think uh, it's a continuation of where we've been in all of these years. I, I, I think the fact that the homes are getting smaller is a good thing overall for the, for the home buying population out there looking for house. Um, Builders are trying to, ease the affordability crisis that we hit at the end of 2018. They're responding. So I, I, I see 2020 as a good, strong year for housing. Excellent. So if they want to find more information, what is the, if they want to find the presentation, which website should they visit? So they should go to Builders Show. There are two S's there in the middle, buildersshow.com. 
and um, look under education. And the easiest way to do this, really, uh, Aaron, is to just look up my name. Uh, you could also look up the name of the session that I presented, but that's a long title. You don't want to remember that. <laughs> so if you just go to buildershow.com and then search under education and type in Rose Quint, um, my session will pop up and this PowerPoint will be attached to that page. Excellent. And there's a lot of other really great resources for rehabbers looking at uh, information and design ideas, all that kind of good stuff. So Rose, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you again. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE license 01219911, Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS license 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. 